Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. One of the outcomes of the COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates over the past three years is that ordinary people trust their governments and media organisations less and less. If this feels like the new normal, that's because it is. Nobody in government or the media could care less about whether you trust them more or not. They hold the power and there is not much that ordinary people like you can do about it. Here's a textbook example. Today, a Twitter account called Reignite Democracy Australia posted this video. Advisors on vaccinations says it's unlikely under 30s will be approved for a fourth COVID vaccine. Atagi says the increased risk of myocarditis means the current vaccine schedule for younger people will likely stay as is. Attention is turning to antivirals to tackle the new Omicron wave. You bloody idiots. The person who posted it for Reignite Democracy also posed this question, quote, how many people had to suffer for you to figure this out, unquote. It's a fair question, given that evidence of the vaccines causing myocarditis in young people has been around almost since the start of the vaccine rollout. People have died or their lives have been ruined because they did what they were told and took the vaccines. But there are very few people in power willing to ask that question, let alone answer it. The video is clearly from a phone pointed at a TV screen. But here's the first weird thing about it. If this video exists anywhere else on the internet, it's very hard to find. I tried searching using a variety of words, including nine, vaccine, COVID, ATAGI, and its proper name, which is Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, the group that advises the government on these matters. All I found was old advice about previous vaccine rollouts and COVID variants, all of which look conspicuously dated and alarmist even to a casual observer these days. Atagi's own website barely mentions the risks associated with the vaccines and doesn't explicitly say under 30s shouldn't get the fourth jab. It just doesn't include that age group among its recommended categories. Now, there might be a valid reason that so much information that would discourage people from getting further jabs is obscured. But even if there is a good reason for that, it doesn't help, say, a person seeking information about whether or not to send a teenager off to get a vaccine booster should do so. You can understand the anguish this confusion might cause someone. To some people, making the decision for themselves or their children has changed their lives forever. The video I showed you says Atagi advises against a fourth booster for anyone under 30. Yet, Atagi's own website right now says, quote, a single COVID-19 vaccine booster dose is recommended for all people over 16 years and older who completed their primary course three or more months ago, unquote. So they're saying if you're under 30, it's safe, indeed recommended, to take your third shot, but don't take the fourth because according to what Channel 9 has been told, 
You might die of myocarditis. Right. By the way, Atagi also recommends pregnant women get vaccinated. vaccinated. So a healthy person aged between 16 and 30 needs to draw the line at three shots, but an unborn fetus is robust enough to take a single jab via its mother. Call me skeptical, but that advice sounds a little sketchy to me. The government and its media partners couldn't publish quickly enough information that frightened us into submission during the pandemic. Now they are conspicuously less hasty about sharing information that contradicts that narrative, let alone analyzes it. But again, they don't care. What can ordinary people do about that these days? The ABC reported on Thursday similar information to the Nine video, but without even a skerrick of curiosity about why it should be so. Quote, the Department of Health says fifth doses of a COVID-19 vaccine are not currently being recommended for most people. Department officials told a Senate committee the vaccine advisory body ATAGI has not, met, not provided ad advice on whether or not most people should get a fifth dose, unquote. Really? After all the hype to promote vaccines as the only solution to the pandemic, wouldn't that make you just a little bit curious? Not if you work at the ABC. The rest of the story simply says there's a new wave of COVID coming, panic, and that the chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, says, quote, if you are sick, and at higher risk of severe disease to make sure you have a plan to get treatments which are very effective and most importantly, if you are due for a vaccine, get a vaccine." Unquote. When I began working in journalism in the early 1990s, the business model for news organisations could be summed up in this promise. Watch our bulletins or read our newspapers because we stick up for you, the viewer slash reader. We speak truth to power on your behalf. That model has well and truly been discarded. The now media organisations speak power, that is their power, which they share with big corporations and the government, to truth, which is what you instinctively know is right, but hardly ever see or read anymore. One truth is that excess deaths in Australia are up by 13% this year compared to the five-year average. Again, few journalists and politicians are curious about this, possibly because the narrative they pushed potentially caused it. To them, the possibility of being proved wrong is too high a price to pay for pursuing the truth. Liberal MP Russell Broadbent belled the cat in Parliament last week. More and more information is coming out about the lack of safety, safety data of this treatment prior to it being pushed onto the population worldwide. We know adverse events are seriously underreported in government reporting system. Anecdotally, we knew of the pressure applied to doctors and nurses here in Australia not to speak out against the narrative. I am disturbed that there is no mention in the mainstream media of the possibility that these jabs could be a causative agent as a medicine and in public as a medicine and in public health, one must open to all possibilities, particularly when the time course of events and timing of adverse outcomes raises red flags. 
What appears to be missing is an open and frank scientific analysis to determine the most likely cause of excess deaths in Australia, one that considers the possibility that experimental gene technologies have contributed. It's not just a scientific analysis that's missing. It's one across all levels of society. Here's another reason to be asking questions. This is a graph produced by a group of British medical professionals in Britain called HART, which stands for Health Advisory and Recovery Team, correlating the relationship between vaccinations and excess deaths in Europe. It would seem to suggest that there is a link. We need to start analysing that information here in Australia. In the Senate Economics Legislation Committee meeting last week, Queensland LNP Senator Jared Rennick asked representatives from the Australian Bureau of Statistics this question. Is it possible that you can track those deaths by vaccination status, number one, and then track between the time of death and the time of vaccination? Again, it takes a senator to ask a question that all journalists in Australia should be asking. The ABS essentially told Senator Rennick it was possible to track the link between vaccinations and deaths and they'd get back to him. We'll keep you informed about, about what, if anything, they find. Well, depending where you get your information from, the midterm elections in the United States were a resounding affirmation of American democracy or proof that the whole system is so corrupt that the Democrats can't win without cheating. To get the wisest analysis of all this, let's bring in Queensland law academic, James Allen. James, welcome. How are you, Fred? Nice to see you. James, firstly, you were predicting a red wave. What happened to that? Well, I'm now eating humble pie. Uh, well, I just, I, I have conceded that uh, the, the goddesses of fate have made me look like an idiot. Uh, well, I think the reason why is up until the, the midterm, going back to pre-2016, virtually every single poll in the U.S. understated Republican support, so it leaned Democrat. And so you had all these polls showing the Republicans were going to do incredibly well, and the betting market showed they were going to do even better. And you remember that all the polls for the last you know seven years had understated Republican support. And then it turns out the polls are completely useless. Now, there's a, a bunch of things going on. Uh, firstly, they actually won the popular vote, the Republicans, by over five points, over five percentage points. And if you go back to 2020, they lost by over five. So that's a 10-point turnaround. In some ways, that's a red wave. What hasn't happened is it hasn't been translated any, into any of the key marginal Senate races or even House races. It now looks like they're going to the Republicans will squeak by in the House. Um, one of the things that you're talking about is, in the U.S., it's 50 states running 50 different election regimes. So they have the same voting system, but how they run the election is up to each state. So Florida, with 22 million people, they had the vote done in three hours. Texas had it done almost immediately. Uh, New York, which is Democrat, they had it done very quickly. Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, well, Pennsylvania was pretty fast. Arizona, Nevada, California. I mean, it's been a week almost, and they're still going. This makes the third world look good. I mean, India has over a billion people, and they can get their counts done in under a day. So 
And, and, and you have other problems in the U.S. in some of these states. So they're accepting postal votes after the close of polls. They have this thing called ballot curing. I didn't even know what that was, you know, where you can fix the ballot after you receive these postal ballots. Fix. They've got drop-off postal boxes. Now, some each state is different. You know, in New Hampshire, you have to actually attend in person with ID. So, again, you can't make a blanket claim about the whole U.S., um, Arizona you can, is a disgrace. Well, you can't, but you Arizona can make. Arizona is a disgrace. I, I agree. There, there is. You can make a claim though that there is some sort of correlation between places that wind up voting Democrat and and places that have problems with their counting. Yes, you with, can. You can. You can certainly make this empirical claim. Every time there's a late sort of mass of ballots and they take forever to count, it always seems a Democrat ends up winning. Yeah. You know, who knows? Maybe if you flip a coin 12 times, it can come up heads, but it's unlikely. Well, here's an, uh, here's you know, an interesting problem. Can, can I just quote you a headline from the Washington Post? This is <laughs> this kind of gives the game away, if you ask me. It says, quote, Arizona precincts with voting problems were not overwhelmingly Republican. <laughs> so they might have they might have been uh, they might have had dodgy counting machines or voting count, vote counting uh, processes. But it's okay because they weren't going to vote Republican anyway. Are you reassured by that, James? No, look, in Maricopa County, there were loads of areas with re massive Republican majority. So that I'm not even sure that's true. Uh, I personally like voting with a ballot paper and a pencil. I don't trust these these voting machines. They're like black boxes. They don't even go back after the fact and count the handwritten papers you feed into the machines. You know, I mean, maybe people trust big tech. Maybe I don't know. But I would prefer to have a hand piece of paper where there's scrutineers standing over the back. I mean, Britain has 65 million people and they can get through the counting in one night. These machines break down. Leave aside the sort of bizarre postal voting practices that COVID ushered in. But I have to say, part of the problem is the Republicans. They don't fight to fix it very much. Now, the you know, one of the reasons people don't are a bit worried in Arizona on the left is that um, Carrie Lake, who's going for governor, has said she is going to, day one, if she gets elected, and she, it's going to be very close. You know, they're counting the Republican areas now. She's going to declare a state of emergency at the border, and she is going to fix the, the problems with how they, they run elections. Great. Yeah. Now, of course, that will mean firing all the uh, all the people who are currently administering the system because they're pathetic. Well, it's amazing yeah, yeah. that it's amazing that she's she hasn't won hands down already because she was up against the incumbent Katie Hobbs, who not only oversees the uh, electoral processes there, but also refused to debate her. I mean, how can that even I be know. a competition? Well, I mean, and, and, and you see, it's pretty clear that Democrats vote for their team come what may. I mean, in Pennsylvania, Fetterman couldn't even speak. He's you know he's had a stroke. He's literally brain damaged. And he got voted in. And, you know, you're getting this mainstream media, plus some of the writers in the Australian saying, well, it's all Trump. That's way, it's way more nuanced than that. I mean, in Nevada, that was an anti-Trump guy who lost. Um, so that was Laxalt. The Trump guy, Masters, lost in Arizona. Uh, there's a pretty, I mean, the, the main sort of Republican establishment took money out of Arizona to send it up to Alaska. Now, Alaska was two Republicans fighting each other. It was always going to be Republican. There was the Murkowski woman who, who um, voted to impeach Trump and the Trump woman. 
Now, what McConnell was doing, taking money out of a, a toss-up state like Arizona and sending it up to Alaska because he, he wanted to keep Murkowski in, he's a real problem. He is, Another yeah. problem is money. Yeah. You know, we have an image from 50 years ago that the right side of politics gets all the money in elections. And that was true. 50. Today, you know, the very wealthy all vote, I'm generalizing, the very wealthy vote left. So in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton took the 100 wealthiest counties in the U.S. So if you look at Arizona, um, the ex-astronaut Kelly, he raised something like $68 million, where Blake Masters, the Republican, raised something like $12 million. So that, that's like six times, almost six times more money for people who've gone through the Australian uh, education system. They can do the math later with the calculator. <laughs> but it's almost six times more money. And so what McConnell was doing, taking money out of that race and sending it up to um, Alaska, Alaska. I, I, I really think that the Republican Party is in a diabolical problem spot right now because the two halves of the party hate each other. The establishment sort of never Trump wing, which is maybe a quarter, and the three quarters of the sort of populist NATO nationalist sort of base, they don't like each other. Um, McConnell's in the earlier former branch, and he just, he wasn't funding the, a lot of the Trump candidates. Some of the candidates Trump picked were very good, like Vance. I think Blake Masters was okay. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Oz was a stupid, stupid yeah. pick. But, you Before, know, it's but not James, at all but... obvious that somebody else would have won. James, before we get on to the internal con conflict but within the Re uh, Republican Party, let's just dwell on, you mentioned Fetterman a minute ago. One of the things that's come out of this election for me is that on, people on the left vote just to stop Republicans or Conservatives, whereas Conservatives tend to vote according to principle. If their candidate, if the candidate from their side doesn't align with their principles, then they just won't vote for him. But you, know, you might notice that uh, Fetterman was touted on MSNBC last week as a potential pre presidential candidate. And the reason for that was that simply because he had beaten Republicans. It's a pretty stark contrast between the two uh, voting demographics, isn't it? Yes. I mean, there's always an independent, sort of mobile independent uh, wing. But again, you know, you have to sort of half blame the Republicans for this. What have they been doing to sort of state by state try to fix the, the way the votes are counted? And the answer in a lot of these states is they haven't done anything. And I know that a lot of it was created by unelected judges during COVID who just made up bizarre voting rules. But it's still a problem that you haven't gone out to fix it. And so that that is certainly a, a problem they, they've got to get around to fixing. But again, they've won by more. They've won the popular vote by more than five points. So right now they're struggling to take the House. If they take the House, no laws will be passed. So it will be gridlocked for two years. You'll, you'll have heard that uh, Biden's sort of bribe to the young people, his uh, waiving of some of the student debt from university was struck down by a federal circuit judge in Texas. That's likely to be upheld. So that sort of giveaway is gone. I think it's Did gone Did you find anyway. the timing of that suspicious? Did they wait till after the election? Well, no, I don't think so. It, it, I mean, I think they, I think that uh, the Biden administration timed the announcement so that it just couldn't get to court before the election. And so this came pretty quickly. I don't think it could have come any sooner. Um, in terms of the vote, if you've looked at the exit polls, the Republicans won um, married men by double figures. So in the teens, 
they won married women. So married women vote Republican by almost 10 percent and single men by seven or eight percent. Those three groups all vote Republican. Does The group that they're getting slaughtered in is single women. Single women vote Democrat by plus 38. So as I said, the, Repu- the Democrat Party now is the party of the super wealthy, the very poor and single women. Yeah, and, and Roe v. Wade, you know, the, Roe v. Wade is, a, is, is the key for them, isn't it? Well, I guess, but I mean, people have surely thinking beings have come to realize that all, all the uh, Dobbs case did was send it back to the legislature. If you live in New York or California or Massachusetts, no abortion entitlement has disappeared. If, if anything, they're stronger. So it's just put it to the Democratic legislature where it belonged in the first place before Roe just made up a sort of bizarre, mystical right that our sort of high court judges are starting to copy and things like love. You know, you just put your finger on the pulse of social values as if a, as if an unelected top judge has the slightest idea what most people think. But um, yeah, no, so that people, I think women will come to realize that unless you live in Alabama or Mississippi, you know, abortion is not going anywhere. Now, yeah. could the Republicans have done a better job explaining this to people? Of course. You know, the the main Republican establishment, they didn't really have a message. They sat on their laurels. Uh, McConnell was too worried about Trump candidates, so he didn't fund them. Uh, There is a sort of Cold War going on in the Republican Party. I don't actually think that that, uh, Trump is going to stand down. And I think that the only person really who can beat him for the nomination is DeSantis. I know all the sort of legacy media types want Trump to go. You know, they, they didn't want him to come in 2015. So I don't really think that that's going to happen. Myself. What's your take on the battle between Trump and DeSantis? Do you think it's just a beat up by the leftist media to distract people from how ordinary the candidates, the Democrat candidates were? I don't know. I mean, you, you buy people wholesale, not retail, right? And so the attraction of Trump, at least for me, is that he's a fighter. And, you know, look what he went through. For four years, they spent the first two years, he couldn't get anything done because they made up a Russia collusion hoax that really makes Watergate look like kids' work. It it was a disgrace. They go to the FISA court. The FBI effectively is using documents they know are untrue. Um, And, you know, he's hobbled for two years. And then, you know, members of the executive are trying to get him impeached for a phone call to Ukraine. All sorts of problems. And he never gives up fighting. So basically, that kind of person is pretty unusual. He's, you know, he's boorish, he's crass, uh, he's he's incapable of backing down. Now, you buy people wholesale. Why do you think he's going to change when it comes to fighting other Republicans? He's not. Do I think DeSantis has got a better track record over the last two years? I do. I think Trump is vulnerable because of lockdowns. Because remember, he did lock down, whereas DeSantis was great through lockdowns. Um, he stood up to the braying masses. I mean, I suppose in Trump's defense that his main advisor, Burks, has now written a book admitting she lied to him. And so it's pretty tough when you're a president, when you're, your top uh, people are lying to you. But again, anyone who gets elected from the right has to realize that the bulk of the civil service hates you. And you have to be prepared for that. And I don't think Trump was fully prepared for the extent to which they'd come after him. DeSantis would be. Now, whether... DeSantis has the sort of cojones and the backbone. He showed a lot of backbone during um, COVID. So that's a good sign. Um, But again, there's other questions like, can DeSantis bring out the base? 
I mean, a lot of commentators say, oh, look, Trump turns off a lot of voters. He does. But he also he also appeals to a lot of voters who otherwise wouldn't vote. It's a voluntary voting system. I think and what I think what a lot clear. of what a lot of critics don't understand, though, is that the 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 primary the primary between these two is going to be a, a very compelling contest. And you know, if the better man it'll does be win, Fred, go on. It'll be compelling, but the problem is that there is no guarantee that after one of them wins, the voters for the other person will turn out for the general election. And so, you know, it's not. <laughs> The problem for DeSantis is he can't really attack Trump because the Trump voters are what make Republican candidates electable. You know, working class voters, especially white working class, especially males. And if you piss them off, they won't come out and vote. And then you have no chance of beating the Democrat zero. And so the problem is it's all very well and good to say, you know, the Trump of the world alienates single women. But he also brings out a hell of a lot of uh, sort of men who otherwise don't vote. And it's not like you can magically sort of keep the ones you want. You know, like running a never Trumper like McCain, you just lose. Right. So it's a very, it, they're in a diabolical position, I think. Uh, I mean, ideally, I'd like Trump to strike a deal with DeSantis where Trump says, you know, be my running mate and I'll step down after two years and a day so you can get the end of that term and then two more terms because they can only stand for two. And, you know, that would drive the left crazy. If Trump were not to run, I guarantee you that the minute that happened, the entire mainstream media in the States would turn to attacking DeSantis. The same way they attacked McCain, you might remember what they did to Romney. You know, they make they were making up these things about, you know, what a, what a horrible person Mitt Romney was until he, you know, until he became a never-Trumper. So the idea that the mainstream legacy press will ever be kind to a Republican candidate is laughable. You go back and look at what they did to Reagan. Yeah, well, they're never going so to do to that. Well, their ratings, their ratings rely on it, James. I mean, CNN has tanked ever since uh, since uh, Trump lost They've office. already found a woman who is that you know uh, something happened with DeSantis. You know this is going to come out, right? Right. They're going yeah. to be lined up. Santa's. It's a it's a guarantee. Yeah. And so they'll hold off on that until until Trump's out of the picture. James, before you go, I've got to ask you about Sam Bankman Fried of FTX, the crypto exchange organization that's just gone or company that's just gone bankrupt after giving away so much money to philanthropic causes and to the Democrat Party. He's the second biggest donor to the party. What's uh, have you sold all your uh, bitcoins as a result, James? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a born skeptic, really. So I've never really bought the whole um, near religious experience with uh, these uh, Bitcoin type uh, and non fungible things. I, I just I, I want to know where the value is. And I've never really understood uh, the value. So I'm a bit skeptical. Uh, you know, I, I understand that if you think it's a uh, sort of, uh, if you think it's a exploding market and you get in early and then it sell off, you can make money. So you can make money even though you're a little bit skeptical. But I wouldn't get into that sort of crazy yeah. skepticism. I'm glad that people who are giving the second most to George Soros to the Democrat Party go bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, 
But well, again, I, I know some Bitcoin enthusiasts, and they're almost they're near religious in their attachment to it. Yeah, well, near religious um, about the Democrat Party too. Sometimes, anyway. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, James. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. See you, Fred. Thanks a lot. That's Queensland law academic James Allen. Well, credit to The Guardian for covering this hilarious story from Scotland. The climate crisis came early for the installers of windmills 27 kilometres off the Scottish coastline in June in an incident that has only just been revealed now. There were 80 workers aboard a platform building the windmills when the plant leaked an undisclosed quantity of sulphur hexafluoride. This is not only one of the worst greenhouse gases in the world, being 23,500 times more potent than carbon dioxide, it is also poisonous to humans if they are exposed to enough of it. Which of these negative impacts is more significant to you would depend where you were when you heard about the leak. If you were sitting in some environmental sharehouse in St Kilda, for example, you'd probably respond by thinking the company installing the windmills was guilty of typical capitalist cost-cutting and maximising profits at the expense of Mother Earth. But if you were actually standing next to the equipment when it happened, you'd probably yell, gas leak and abandon rig, which according to The Guardian, is exactly what happened. Of course, The Guardian couldn't help trying to sugarcoat it all. Quote, energy companies are attempting to find alternatives to sulfur hexafluoride, which is banned in Europe, except for use in power generation where it is used as an insulating gas in switchgear, unquote. Well, so that makes this leak slightly more palatable then, doesn't it? The Guardian also quoted a trade unionist saying this leak was only revealed because the union made sure it was and that there were probably other leaks that flew under the radar. Now, finally, there was an alternative to all this pointless construction and environmental destruction that offered a clean and reliable way to produce energy. If we think of one, we'll be sure to share it with The Guardian, where the journalists must by now be utterly tired of pretending that windmills Solar panels made by slaves in China and batteries using metals dug up by child labour in Congo are anything other than stupid ideas. Now, in other crazy woke news, US President Joe Biden has announced a climate gender equity fund, which will ensure that the taxpayer money being siphoned off to climate grifters will be evenly distributed to women as well as men. Now, that's progress for you. According to the president's announcement, the fund will, quote, help provide women climate leaders with technical skills, networks, and capital to develop and scale climate solutions that are as good as anything any member of the oppressive patriarchy can do, unquote. I might have made up that last bit, but you get the idea. The fund kicks off with a lazy six million US dollars and is expected to grow once Biden twists a few corporate arms that they won't be getting any favors from him if they don't cough up. Apparently Amazon, which has lost a trillion dollars of market capital since July last year, has nevertheless promised to throw in a few million. 
$6 million US might be a lot of money to you and me, but it's barely a drop in the ocean for old Joe. The Gender Equity Fund is actually down the bottom of a list of promises Joe made to COP27 this week, with the headline promises being in the hundreds of millions. They sound impressive too. Bolstering global climate resilience, accelerating global climate action, and expanding early warning systems to all of Africa. These plans and ideas are so grand, so ambitious, so unbelievably ridiculous that you have to wonder how Joe was able to wait till after the midterms to announce them. Well, you might have heard last week about the case of Freya Leach, the law student whose name and conservative political persuasion just happened to be the same as a fictional character in a law exam set by a Sydney university where she studies. Students received the exam on November 4 and had nine days to answer questions regarding the criminal liabilities of four dodgy characters, including one called Freya, who deliberately runs over a Chardonnay socialist in her car then has unprotected sex despite knowing she is HIV positive before being pushed out of a fifth floor window by a jealous fiance and killed. Charming stuff. While the crimes described might be technically relevant to a law degree, the cliched characters and amateur prose of the person who wrote the exam probably deserves criminal investigation themselves. Honestly, a law degree would be difficult enough without being exposed to Z-grade fiction written by a lefty examiner with a secret Freudian desire to kill conservatives. All that aside though, as soon as the exam was released, students started posting offensive comments about Freya somehow representing Leach to an anonymous Facebook page. Leach is well known on Sydney University campus as a conservative, which is brave enough given the wokeness of university campuses these days. Her complaint to the faculty was ignored. So exercising more bravery than her anonymous critics will ever understand, she went to the media last week. And as a result, the exam was widely distributed, compromising its integrity and the university was forced to withdraw it. And this is where the case gets even worse. On Friday, it was announced that the new exam would be held over a two-day period, not nine, starting after the official exam period had ended. In other words, during the summer break. Leach says this was another deliberate attempt to vilify her. And Leach joins me now. Freya, welcome. Thank you for having me. Freya, what happened when the new timetable for the exam was announced last week? I mean, frankly, it was just an onslaught of online abuse. It was quite difficult to see your peers posting often slanderous and frankly untrue things about you behind the security of anonymity on social media. So that was very, very tough. And I think what's really sad is that my cohort have become the unintentional victims in this scenario as well, because they are now being punished for the university's ridiculous exam. So do you think it was an attempt to provoke this response from your peers? Look, again, we don't know. 
The problem is the outcome is very clear. I've been called the most hated person in the law school at Sydney University. People have made things up about my family. People have said they can never forgive me. They've sworn at me. They've sent me private direct messages uh, attacking me. And so whether it was deliberate or not, it doesn't change the outcome. And I think the university should have considered their actions uh, more closely before, before resetting this exam. Yeah, well, I've seen some of the comments that were posted to that page, that some of them are really extremely vile. How did they make you feel? It's very, it's very, very upsetting. And I think what's worse is behind the anonymous Facebook discussion page, you don't actually know who's making the comments. It could be the same five people who have it out for me, or it could be 50 of my peers. You just don't know. And that's one of the, the scary parts about social media. Yeah, it sure is. And especially when you're dealing on a daily basis with these people. I mean, you could be standing next to them in the cafeteria for all you know. Well, that's right. I mean, you, you never know. And, and I think this is the hard part. And this is why so many big institutions operate with impunity, because it is a very scary thing to actually stand up and, and speak out about issues that, that are a matter of right and wrong, frankly. This exam was just wrong. And now my reputation and my standing among my peers has been dragged through the mud. And that's a very sad fact. But sometimes you do have a higher duty uh, to speak out and to advocate for what is objectively right. Yeah, well, I admire that. Now, when the uh, original exam was withdrawn, the university said that it was done because the exam had been compromised because it had been so widely distributed. But did the university ever concede that the names in the exam were in poor taste? No. So that's the thing. The university has repeatedly denied any wrongdoing and maintained the fact that the whole thing is just a coincidence. It's very hard to believe, frankly, given that every single name was the name of someone in my class or my cohort. But even if it was a coincidence, it seems you would have to be pretty incompetent to not do a three second search of the class list and realize everyone was someone in my class or someone in my cohort who would be sitting that exam. So they haven't admitted fault, but the outcomes have been detrimental. Well, it would seem reasonable that you have something of a potential case for defamation here, wouldn't you say? I mean, if so, are you considering your legal options at the moment? At the moment, I'm considering all of my options. My primary concern is holding the Sydney University Law School to account and making sure no law school, let alone Sydney Law, ever produces such a biased exam again and is never reckless enough not to check the names used in the exam and make sure they do not belong to one of the students sitting that exam. That's my primary concern. Yeah, well, fair enough and diplomatically put, but I'd have to say it would be incredibly amusing to see a university, a law student, sue a law faculty. Well, they train us to be lawyers. Well, they train that's us to be right. Lawyers. Yes, I hope they've trained you well. <laughs> that's all I can say. Now, do you have any idea who the person is who wrote this paper? No, we don't. We don't at all, and we've been given very little information. Uh, as part of the formal complaint process, they will hopefully undergo an investigation into that, but whether the, the author of the exam is revealed or not, we're yet to see. Okay, now let's talk about the politicisation of the legal profession. 
Now, allow me to read from the New South Wales Law Society website regarding the inalienable right of Aboriginal people to self-determination. Now, this is this might seem a bit of a leap from what we've just been talking about, but it is related and we'll get there in a minute. But anyway, the quote is, the right to self-determination requires that people freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social and cultural development, unquote. Now, Aboriginal people are already free to determine their political status and pursue their economic, social and cultural development. And one of the reasons they are able to do this is that our current legal system ensures it. Now, why can't lawyers understand that, in your opinion, Freya? I know you're just a student, but you're passionate about the law. Let's hear your opinion on it. Look, I think it's a real struggle in the 21st century. I think oftentimes the balance between pursuing social justice ends and actually just sticking to due process is often quite twisted and and I think a lot of times you see people pursuing social justice as as a way to feel morally vindicated when I think the best and most moral form of justice is being unbiased is being impartial and actually following the process and maintaining the rule of law that's exactly right equality before the law are they teaching you that at, at at law school these days? Again, there is a lot of variability between the professors and the tutors. I've had some excellent professors that have fundamentally understood the value of the rule of law and how that actually differentiates great societies that allow for human flourishing from those that do not. But again, there are others that prefer to pursue more biased forms uh, and interpretations of the law. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah, so well, it brings us back to the, the, the wording of this particular exam question, and which was particularly left-wing. Now, do, is in your opinion, is Sydney University law faculty training students to be leftist lawyers? Look, that's the danger here. The danger is that bias seeps into every student's form of engagement with the law, whether it's the syllabus that's taught or more concerningly, the exams that are set. And it's a very concerning reality that this is actually going on. And, and what you identified there, that we have a whole cohort of very left-wing biased lawyers, uh, that's really the danger. And that is honestly why I stood up and why I decided to say something, even though it's come at great personal cost. Because I think if you don't call these things out, at the source, at the root of the issue, which is in law faculties and in universities, these forms of agendas are pushed without any scrutiny and without any accountability. One of the comments I saw regarding you was that you are hoping to graduate into a profession when you have already pretty much outed you yourself as a conservative and that you will have difficulty uh, prospering in that profession because you're so right wing. What do you think about that? Look, if my political views inhibit me from a successful career in a profession, I don't think I want to go into that profession. And I think that comment there demonstrates the political climate that we're dealing with at the moment and the danger of this situation. If being right wing disqualifies you from any form of meaningful career in the law, I think Australia is in a much more dire situation than anyone can really imagine. 
Well, Freya, with students like you coming up through the ranks, I think our, our future is reasonably positive as long as you keep fighting. <laughs> Thank I you, admire Freya. <laughs> your fighting spirit and uh, good luck in the exam. Thank you. Freya Leach, thanks so much for your time. And just before I go, have a look at this exchange between South Australian Senator Alex Antich and representatives from the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, otherwise known as ACARA, in a Senate committee hearing last Friday. The history syllabus teaches that Indigenous Australians would have seen uh, the arrival of the First Fleet in 1788 as an invasion. Um, was the arrival of the First Fleet an invasion? What do the, um, what the new organising ideas uh, for the cross-curriculum priority Indigenous uh, cross, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people does is indicate that if you're uh, looking at different perspectives, you need to try to put yourself in the shoes of those people uh, and uh, interpret uh, or look at those, um, those perspectives and try to understand people's reactions to them. Um, so I'm sure that when all ministers signed off on the curriculum on the 1st of April this year, that those matters have been considered by them. So that's a no? I'm saying that when all ministers signed off on that at the start of this year in April, those matters would have been considered by them. So that's a, that's a you don't want to answer it? I'm, I'm not, you might have to repeat the question, Minister. It's not a tough question. Was Australia invaded in 1788? The answer, of course, is no. That answer always was and always will be the correct one. Senator Antich eventually received a different answer that Akara, quote, doesn't have a specific view on that matter, unquote. And what is ACARA? Well, it's the organisation that wrote the National School Curriculum. If you've ever wondered why young people are so convinced that Australia is a racist colonial oppressor, you can, in part, thank these people. Australia was in reality fortunate to be founded at the tail end of the Enlightenment, when the idea that all men are created equal, all men and women are created equal, and that freedom was the greatest guarantor of happiness and prosperity were taking hold around the world, especially in places lucky enough to be settled or colonised by Europeans. Australia, more than almost any other nation in the world, thrived as a result of these principles being considered fundamental. But lately, our education system has taught generations of kids to think the opposite. That we sought to commit genocide on the Indigenous, which is patently false, and that we have obliterated Indigenous culture, which is also clearly untrue. But that's what your kids learned at school today. And that's why, in a survey held by the Institute of Public Affairs in March this year, only 32% of Australians aged 18 to 24 said they would fight to defend Australia if it were invaded. 28% they said they weren't sure, and a massive 40% said they would do a runner at the first whiff of grape shot. Where they would run to, they didn't say. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night at eight o'clock. Good night.